Good morning. It is so good to see you here this morning. And as, as the bumper shows, we're starting a new series today called, today called Anxious for Nothing. But first, I just want to say I'm so grateful to be part of a church that values family and kids. That's part of our DNA, has been for a long time. I'm so grateful to be part of a church who have families who value the church and are willing to say, I don't want to do this alone. So let me say this. If you came today expecting a frothy message with all the feels because the kids were on stage, well, I'm not your guy for that. You that know me know that. Mainly because I'm a parent too, and I feel like I need to do what we did this morning every week and get my boys up here and say, please pray for us. <laughs> and let's, let's pray for each other. I'm trying my best, but I need help. And, and I have to admit, parents, you can probably admit to this too, there are days when I look at the world and think, I'm not sure it was a good idea to bring kids into this. But the world needs kids who grow to know and love and trust and follow Jesus and grow to be adults who love and trust and follow Jesus and who pray the prayer, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth through me. That's why we're here this morning. But I confess, again, sometimes I find myself anxious about what kind of world my boys are growing up in. And I know I'm not alone in that. In the summers, we go up to the Upper Peninsula and, and teach at a Bible camp. And a year ago, I might have shared this before, I was talking about things that hold us prisoner, things that, that we find ourselves in bondage to. And I passed out cards and said, I want to pray for you over the next year. Just tell me what holds you captive. And probably two-thirds of the cards that came back in just had one word, anxiety. And these are, these are the kind of parents who go to Bible camp with their families for the summer. But they find themselves imprisoned by anxiety. So it's probably appropriate on today of all days, on September 11th, I don't think I have to pitch real hard the idea that anxiety is a real issue. It's a real problem we face. Now, I want to define real quick what I mean by anxiety. You know, there, there's fear, which is a rational response to a present threat or a present danger. Fear is natural. Anxiety is a response, often an ongoing, undefined response to a perceived threat, a perceived danger. I can't tell you exactly what I'm afraid of, but I'm afraid of something. You know, healthy fear is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's, it's part of growing and learning. We teach our child to fear a hot stove. No, no, don't touch. Hot, hurt, don't touch. But anxiety takes it to the next level. Anxiety thinks, maybe I should get rid of my stove. <laughs> when you're out of the house, what, what, if, what if they touch the stove when I'm not there? Did I leave the stove on? What if I burn the house down? Did I pay our insurance premiums this month? I'm going to be homeless. How did this happen? That's anxiety. Response, not always a rational response to a perceived threat or danger. You know, 21 years ago, when I woke up and a friend called and said, turn on your TV, and I turned on just in time to see the second plane hit a building, there was a genuine fear that gripped the country. There was something happening. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know why. We didn't know what was next. But there was a very tangible, obvious thing to fear. But in the months and years that followed, that turned into an anxiety to where now, 21 years later, we're taking off our shoes and frisking grannies at the airport because we're afraid of what might happen. It's no wonder that 
Gen Z, kids born from about 1997 to 2012. They followed the millennials. They're considered the most anxious generation our culture has ever known. Because even though they have no memory of the actual events of 9-11, they grew up in a world that was shaped by its anxious aftermath. Does that make sense? All they know is we've got to be afraid of something and we don't know what. I mean, we've kind of seen the same thing happen with COVID. In, in the early days of COVID, there was a legitimate fear because there was this misunderstood or not understood threat with very real, very devastating consequences. The fear was a natural response. But now we're seeing these few years later, all these studies showing the effects on our kids socially and developmentally and academically because they've been taught to be afraid, but they don't know what of, what of right now, what, what might happen, what could happen. So today and for the next four weeks, as we talk about being anxious for nothing, the question is, is that possible in today's world? I mean, we can all agree there's plenty to be anxious about. We'll never be free from the presence of anxiety in our lives. But can we be free from the prison of persistent or a perpetual anxiety, from that persistent, restless, tense feeling, that fight or flight sense of impending danger that's always just right there? Can we be free from the trouble sleeping or the trouble concentrating or, let's be honest, the trouble going to the bathroom? that anxiety causes people, that's no way to live at all. Jesus said, my perfect love drives out fear. He said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and who the Son sets free is free indeed. So each week for this series, we're going to look at a biblical story of someone who was facing legitimately fearful, anxious times, and see if maybe we can see ourselves in that story, and maybe we can see a way through as we read. But every week, as Nat said, we're going to root ourselves in, and we will read every week Philippians 4, 4 through 8. So let's read that together. Not out loud, on the screen. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Now, I want to turn this morning to a story in 1 Kings chapter 19, an episode in the story of, uh, in the life of Elijah. And we're going to spend four or five weeks on this particular story in January. So we'll just kind of skim across the top this morning. But Elijah had had an interesting few years. In Israel, there was a wicked king named Ahab, one of the most wicked kings the nation ever had. But his wife was even worse. She was like wicked times 12, the real driver of all the evil that was happening. Well, Elijah went to the king and told Ahab, because of your sin, there will be neither rain nor dew in the land until I say so, which made him not a popular person, not only with the king, but with anybody. So it's interesting in 1 Kings 17, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah after he's just delivered this message, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine. That's an interesting thing to me, that God didn't say, 
I'm going to deliver you mightily. He said, you need to hide. Sometimes that's an appropriate response. You've got to run away from real danger. He said, while you're there, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. So that's what happened. He ran away. He hid in this ravine where nobody would find him. He drank from a brook. The ravens came and fed him. But it, there was a drought. There was no rain. There was no dew. Eventually, the brook dried up, and he hit one of those low spots in his life. God, you said you would provide, and now you're not. So God sent him to a widow in Zarephath, not in Israelite territory. She was at the very end of her rope. She was cooking her last meal so she and her son could die. But God provided miraculously, and she and her son and Elijah were provided for for the duration of the drought. That was a real high spot. God's power is on display. And then the widow's son died. That was a low spot. And then Elijah brought him back to life by God's power. That was a high spot. Then there was this contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal where God revealed himself in power and came and the prophets were killed. And it was the highest of highs. And I was in a conversation with a friend this week in the office. He said, man, life is just like this. He said, don't you just wish it could be like this? Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound unrealistic in today's world? So in 1 Kings 19, Elijah has just been responsible for the death of the, pro the prophets of the king's favorite idol. So King Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, not God, but my gods, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you're not dead too. And this is interesting. Elijah was afraid, reasonable, but because of his fear, not because God told him, but because of his fear, ran for his life. Again, there's a very real threat. I don't want to die, but he didn't wait for God's direction. He took off on his own. And this sent him into a spiral of anxiety and depression and a total loss of perspective they got really bad. He forgot all that God had done for him. He forgot that after the lows, there have been highs. So in 1 Kings 19, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. So I want us to see what Elijah did, because maybe we can see some of ourselves in this. First thing Elijah did, he ran himself ragged. From Mount Carmel to Beersheba is 100 miles. He ran the whole way, fueled by adrenaline and fear and panic, and he didn't stop. Ran himself till he had nothing left in the tank. The second thing he did, he isolated himself. Did you see that? He left his servant behind. The one person who knew him, who knew his highs and lows, knew his emotional makeup, who could speak truth into his life, Elijah said, you stay here. And he went another day on by himself, alone. And then all he could focus on was the negative. I've had enough, Lord. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. I've done everything I can do. I have nothing left to give. There's, there's too much month at the end of the money, but the bills just keep coming. 
The car broke down. The washer broke down. My relationships have broken down. A friend betrayed me. I have no margin anywhere in my schedule. I can't keep up with my homework. I can't keep up with my job. I've had enough. Maybe you've run as far as you can run and you've run out of options and you don't see a way forward. And to you, the Apostle Paul has the gall to say, don't be anxious about anything. Now, before you dismiss Paul as out of touch, he doesn't know what it's like to live in 2022. Let me give you a little background. The Apostle Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. What he would do was travel around to strategic cities in the known world, trade routes, economic centers, centers of intellectual debate, where the influencers were. He would come and bring the gospel and plant churches with people who he knew would be able to take the gospel. Again, strategic places, opportunity to spread and see the church grow. He had always wanted to go to Rome, which makes sense. It's the capital of the Roman Empire, where the biggest of the influencers are, are living. He could meet the movers, the shakers. He might even get to meet the emperor himself and share the message of Jesus with him. Well, Paul made it to Rome, but not as a preacher. He was there as a prisoner. So while he was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, as far from the centers of trade and influence as he could possibly be, not knowing if he would ever be free, not knowing if he would get out alive, in a situation where, I'll be honest, I would be paralyzed by the endless list of mights and coulds and what-ifs. From that place, Paul wrote, don't be anxious about anything. If anybody had a reason to be anxious, it was Paul. But he said, you don't be anxious about anything. How could he say that? Well, because of something he knew that he wrote in Philippians 4 that we need to remember. And that was simply, the Lord is near. Look at somebody beside you and say, the Lord is near. Let's say it all together. One, two, three. The Lord is near. So let's go back to Elijah. He's hiding in a cave, and the darkness in the cave can compare with the darkness in his mind and in his heart. He voices this complaint to God, and finally God says, look, can I talk? Get ready. I've got something to say. And as Elijah stands in the mouth of the cave, there's an earthquake that shakes the mountain, and it says God was not in the earthquake. And there's a fire that sweeps across the hillside and consumes everything. God was not in the fire. There's a wind so powerful that it's breaking rocks, and God was not in the wind. And you know what came next? A whisper. Pastor Craig Groeschel says, why does God whisper? Because he's near. Maybe you've heard this before. The devil shouts his lies. But the Lord whispers his presence, whispers his love, whispers his promise that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. So Paul was able to write from a Roman prison, not knowing if he would live to see another sunrise, be anxious for nothing, because he knew the Lord is near. That even when you've isolated yourselves from those around you, you're not alone. 
Even when you've run as far as you can run, when you have nothing left to give, you are thoroughly depleted. You are not without resource. Even when all you can see is the bad, the good is close at hand because the Lord is near. You are not forsaken. You are not beyond hope. All is not lost. Do you hear God whisper, I am near? Now, here's the irony of Elijah's story. I love this. I mean, he ran away in response to a legitimate threat. Jezebel wanted to kill him, and he didn't want to be dead, so he ran away. But his anxiety, his skewed perception of reality, eventually told him death was the only way out, and that's what he wanted. He said, just kill me, God. I don't want to die. Well, yeah, kill me. But here's the best part of the story. Do you know how Elijah died? Anybody know? He didn't die. The thing he was most afraid of, then the thing that he thought was his only way out, never happened. A chariot of fire came down and swooped him up, and he was taken away to be with God. And he never had to die. The thing he feared the most, the trigger for his depressive episode, never happened. You've probably heard the quote before, and I can't pronounce French names, so this guy said it. My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. In the last month, I couldn't decide if I would share this or not. I'm just going to kind of gloss over it real quick. I had some tests, medical tests that were troubling, and so went to see um, a doctor, and he was concerned and sent me for some more tests. And I've been wearing collared shirts more than usual because I didn't want you to see my scar back here. I had a couple of lymph nodes taken off and biopsied. And when you are an IU Health patient, you have access to the portal and you can see your results before, you know, before you've talked to a doctor, which is a bad idea, I've determined. Because my portal said you have lymphoma, which is true. Now, let me tell you, there's a... I went to see my oncologist this week, and he said, you can live with this for 30 years. It's, it's called indolent, very slow growing. Um, we'll watch it. We'll have tests. I said, so you're telling me I'm not going to die? He said, oh, no, you're going to die. He said, we haven't found the cure for that yet, but you're not going to die from this anytime soon. But in between getting my test results and getting good news from the doctor, I can't describe for you, if you haven't been there, what's that, what that's like to think it might be over. It's real easy to focus on the negative, to think, well, if I'm going to die, just take me now, God. God said, no, I've got bigger plans for you. So I'm sticking around. Just want you to know that. Yeah. <laughs> it, we've talked about this before in, in a book called Essential Practices of the Christian Faith. There's a practice called relinquishment that it would do us all a lot of good to learn because life throws stuff at us all the time. And so let me tell you about the practice of relinquishment, of letting go of things which otherwise will keep us bound in a prison of anxiety. Step number one, in prayer, admit to God that what you fear most might actually happen. So when I'm thinking, I have cancer, I'm going to die, 
I had to tell God, okay, I might. Sometimes simply naming the fear robs it of its power over you. Yes, I understand that there are no guarantees, God. There's no guarantee that you won't let this thing that I fear happen to me. I acknowledge that. That robs it of so much of its power. Number two, place the situation in God's hands. And, and I never like people to say, oh, just give it to God. What does that even mean? Well, what it means is we pray like Jesus. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But not as I will. It's as you will. Number three, and this might be hard. Tell God that you will accept whatever he allows to happen. Because, God, I trust that you are good. It's an expression of trust. It's not resigning yourself to say, well, I'd like to be healed, but your will be done because you probably won't. No, it's not that. It's saying, God, I want to look for your work that you're doing no matter what happens. And then number four, acknowledge that his ways really are better than mine. Now, we're going to talk in the coming weeks about the correlation between persistent anxiety and our desire for control. So for now, let me just read Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The prison of anxiety is created in our minds. So if we'll surrender to the belief that his mind is better than ours, his thoughts are higher than ours, his ways can overcome our ways of thinking and perceiving the world, we've surrendered control to say, okay, God, this is yours. Whatever happens, I trust in you. Now, there are also some practical things you can do. Like Elijah, maybe you've run yourself ragged and you have nothing left to give. Maybe it's time to do a schedule audit and admit, I am stretched beyond my capacity. I have neglected caring for myself. I have gone beyond my limits. Be honest. What are the motivations for me trying to please so many people and thinking I have to be this to all people? Just do an audit of your schedule. Number two, as you do that, schedule some rest. Again, in January and February, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about rest, about the practices of abiding in Christ. So just put it on the calendar. I've got to take some time. Number three, maybe you've isolated yourself because you don't want to be seen as weak or needy. You've hidden your pain from other people, and all I can say is stop it. Don't do that. On your chairs this morning are little cards and we've given you the privilege of anonymity if you want it. But if you're struggling with anxiety, if there's something that you just can't break free, you can't stop thinking about, but what if this happens, this bad thing could happen? Just write it down. Write your name on the back if you want to, but you don't have to. Write it down and drop it in the giving boxes as you leave this morning. I promise you the staff and the elders will pray for you. And if you need somebody to walk with you and to talk with you, we are here for you but the most important thing you can do when all you can see is the bad then as the writer of Hebrews said fix your eyes on Jesus 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Man, that was a bad day. The thing that nobody wanted to see happen was actually happening. That was the end of the line. That was the death of hope. There was nowhere else left to turn. And yet, even in that horrible hour, the Lord was near. He was working. He was doing his greatest work because through Jesus dying an undeserved death, we were given the opportunity for an undeserved life, an eternal life, where the Lord will be eternally near to us, will be with us. His full glory revealed before our eyes, our full glory revealed as we were always meant to be. Everything will be made right for all who call on his name. So if you're bound in a prison of anxiety, of fear, of doubt, of regret, of worry, of shame, there is freedom to be found in Jesus. That's why every week, every week I need to take communion. Because every week I need to be reminded on what seems like the worst day ever. God might be doing something greater than I could ever comprehend. His ways are so much higher than mine. What feels like defeat might be paving the way for a breakthrough and a victory so much better than I could dream. That's the power of the cross of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then I want you to take your bread and juice and just spend some time and name to God the things that you're most afraid of and then hold them up to the cross and say, God, you can overcome all. You have overcome all through your son. And take the bread to remember his body. Take the juice to remember his blood. Thank him for the hope that endures, for the promise that he is near through his son. Let's pray. Father, our minds are bombarded with lies that, the, that our enemy shouts at us that we are alone, that we are beyond hope, that there's no reason to live. Father, may we hear your whisper that you are near. May we know that we're not alone. May we know that we're not beyond hope, that we're not beyond salvation because of your son. God, may we, like Elijah, discover that the thing we feared the most never even happens because you take us to glory. God, we know anything's possible because your son died and rose again. And he ascended to your right hand and he promises he's coming back for us. God, may we hold on to Jesus. May we hold on to hope. May we hold on to strength. Father, let us be anxious about nothing because we serve a risen Savior. And we pray in his name.